Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This week, as America recoiled and recovered from two horrific mass shootings, making 250 mass shootings at that time um, in the U.S. this year, I'm believe there have been more since then. Um, Horrifically, um, I will be speaking to activist, former congressional candidate and gun violence survivor, Karee Pennebaker, about the changing politics of gun violence in the the United States of America. But first, um, a quick roundup of the other um, primary related news of the week. First of all, Mike Gravel has announced the completion of his presidential campaign. He is withdrawing from the race. Uh, Gravel, who is a uh, repeat candidate, he also ran in the 2008 presidential race um, and actually managed to make the debates in that race, but but did not manage to um, meet any of the qualifying criteria to appear in either of the two Democratic debates so far. Um, he has therefore, um, well, I don't know if it's therefore or not, but he has withdrawn his candidacy. Um, in fairness to Mike Gravel, it should be said that his um, explicit intention in the race was never that he actually expected to be elected outright, but that he hoped to move the candidate field um, further in the direction of supporting um, his pacifist anti-war positions. Uh, Gravel, in stepping out of the race, has actually endorsed uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, last week, we talked about the Democratic debates that were held last week. Um, We had two back-to-back debates. I thought it would be interesting to check back and see if those two debates had significantly impacted on the polling of any of the candidates. So I am looking at the Real Clear Politics polling um, averages between uh, the date that the debate was conducted and today. Um, And I'm seeing not a lot of massively interesting trends. Um, Two things, probably three things worth noting. Um, Joe Biden, who was at about 32 points in support um, at the time the debate was conducted, um, but who had been climbing in support um, previous to the debate, uh, has kind of plateaued. His support plateaued a little bit straight after the debate and declined very slightly more recently. That could obviously just be noise from um, from polling, um, polling noise, um, but it's worth noting. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren has seen a very slight uptick in her support after the race, um, and Senator Kamala Harris, um, who you may remember got a big poll bump after a strong performance in the first debate. Um, much of that poll bounce had eroded by the time the second debate took place, and she's actually seen a small-ish decline in her support, um, small but at a pretty steep rate of decline, um, which would obviously be very concerning for Senator Harris if that should continue. Um, Nobody else has any significant polling movement either way, um, which doesn't particularly surprise me, given that I think my main take on that debate was that it it wasn't really a good use of four hours of voters' times. Um, And if you haven't yet seen the debate, I'd strongly urge you to follow my or somebody else's recap and spend the rest of your time doing something else (laughs) ahead of the next debate, which is coming up in September and which should be hopefully more informative as it will have a smaller field of candidates. And finally, in the news this week, um, the retirement of um, Republican Representative Will Hurd um, from Texas 
draw us through a spotlight on an interesting trend um, in Republican retirements so far this year. Um, We have seen nine Republican retirements at this point in the cycle. Obviously, it's quite early in the 2018 re-election cycle, but nine House retirements from the Republican caucus. That compares with about, um, with I believe, 11 retirements at this point in the previous cycle, um, which means that we're in similar territory for the Republicans. And bearing in mind that because they lost a lot of seats in the last election, um, so they were down uh, more than 40 seats from the previous election, they actually have a smaller caucus to start with. Um, So the nine retirements doesn't bode particularly well for them. It's particularly noteworthy that Will Hurd, who um, is the one who prompted a lot of this conversation, is the only African-American member of the House Republican Caucus. So they will now not have any um, African-American representation in their caucus um, after 2018, unless, of course, um, someone should run, uh, someone should run and win um, in that case. Um, It's also worth spotlighting a, a little mini trend in that respect, which people have been um, talking quite a bit about, which is the Texas-based focus of retirements. We've had three retirements specifically from the state of Texas. Um, Now, Texas has been a a very transitional state, and it's been one that a lot of people have been talking about as being demographically changing really quickly. There's been a lot of speculation about whether Texas might actually potentially be a swing state in 2020. That might be a stretch, um, but this high number of retirements, including two seats, um, herds and one other seat, which are very closely competitive, specifically in the state of, actually there are three, I think that were pretty potentially competitive, um, in the state of Texas. Um, so it's worth paying attention to that and taking note of that. It certainly suggests that the Texas Republican party is not feeling super confident going into the 2020 race. Um, so that is a trend that we will be paying attention to not only because it has big implications for the electoral college, um, but also because the, um, the Texas State House um, will be responsible for leading the redistricting effort after the 2020 election. Remember, after the decennial the the, the um, decennial census, the 10-year census, um, each state will go ahead and, and reapportion itself. It will reallocate um, its districts, um, and the Texas Texas has famously, in the last round of reapportionment, um, went with a heavily gerrymandered map. If indeed the trend should turn out that Texas um, should be in in the movement towards perhaps um, that's this Texas State House um, becoming less Republican. Um, that would have really big implications for the drawing of the of the congressional map going forward. Okay, so a lot of news this week, but the big news this week has very much been around the horrific gun violence um, that we've seen. President Donald Trump um, visited the instance, the the locations of the shooting. Um, he actually recorded a camp, some video that he turned into a specific campaign ad um, in a manner that I and many others found quite offensive. Um, and many of the victims of those shootings refused to speak with him. Um, Trump, I think, is is wildly unfit for the job of comforting the nation at a time of trauma. Um, But it is not just a Donald Trump problem that we have when we talk about gun violence in America. This is a decades-long issue. And to help me unpack it, um, I have gone to 
speak to the brilliant and um, um, very interesting uh, former congressional candidate, activist, um, and gun rights advocate, Karee Pennybaker. So um, that interview is coming up now. So I want to welcome Karee Pennebaker to the podcast. Karee is a former congressional candidate. He is a DNC member um, out of Wisconsin, uh, one of the critical states for us, obviously, in 2020. Um, you are active with Everytown and with Moms Demand Action, um, helping to lead and work towards comprehensive um, gun control and gun reform. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Karee. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's not a pleasure to have you on for the reason that I'm having you on, which is that we need to talk about the fact that this past weekend, America was again confronted with tragedy. Um, there were two different mass shootings within a 24-hour period, one in El Paso, Texas, and then another in Dayton, Ohio. I had, I believe, about 250 mass shootings in America just in this year alone, and of course, tens of thousands more firearm deaths all over the country. Um, Curry, this is heartbreaking. Why does it keep happening? Uh, basically because our elected officials would rather think and pray than take action to uh, prevent these tragedies from infecting our cities and, and causing immense amount of tragedy and trauma to families who don't deserve it. So you say our elected officials, um, there have been a lot of efforts um, from Democrats for going way back. Um, President Obama famously tried and, and failed many, many times to get something through. Um, is there anything that can break this deadlock? What is stopping us from basically waking up and realizing that this is a problem we can and should solve? Well, I think if you if you look back into uh, 2008, uh, into that election uh, cycle where you um, you didn't have a lot of conversation about gun violence prevention. Same thing in 2012, although it increased, uh, it, it was essentially treated like a third rail issue for Democrats. But now, uh, thanks to the work of Moms Demand and Everytown and, and so many more of the gun violence prevention organizations, uh, it is a major issue now where it's one of the top 10 or even top five issues that people vote on. Um, and I think that's what it's going to take, unfortunately, yeah. that where uh, our elected officials seem to think that they can get by with doing nothing. The electorate is simply saying no. Um, and we are no longer willing to accept um, empty rhetoric or um, whataboutism or excuses, because whether they, you know, decide to offer their thoughts and prayers, you know, people are dying needlessly. You have 100 gun deaths a day, the majority of which are gun suicides like my mom. Uh, you have mass shootings like what happened uh, over the weekend uh, or Parkland. Today marks the seven-year uh, mark of the Oak Creek Seek Temple mass shooting here in Oak Creek, uh, here in Wisconsin, which is you know, just minutes from where I am right now. So yeah. uh, we're having more and more people wake up and say, this is a major issue and we're not willing to accept more death and less action. I think that's a really accurate diagnosis of the political situation. For many, many years, Democrats have been running scared on gun control um, because we've convinced ourselves that um, the, the, the majority of voters, and it's long been a majority of voters who support 
a sensible common sense gun reform. Um, we've convinced ourselves that those voters don't care enough about the issue to, to vote on it. Right. Whereas we know that NRA members and, um, and, and, and gun loving voters um, are often single issue voters. Does it feel to you like that is changing? Has this movement actually been making enough of an impact that people are seeing it as a primary issue to motivate their vote? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll have this conversation about the the, uh, the death choke uh, that the, the gun death lobby has on our electorate, or especially our elected officials. But what it really means is, is that they know they have an army of um, single issue voters, but it's a, it's a very small minority of voters. Uh, we know that there are more of us who want common sense gun reform, who have been more and more vocal about the issue and, and, and then putting that issue at the top of our, uh, our voting priority list. Uh, now, I'm not a single issue voter in the traditional sense, but I look at everything through the prism of gun violence prevention and then work my way backwards from there. And more and more people are, are doing that, that there are so many issues that are that permeate each other with between gun violence and women's issues, uh, women, or gun violence and health care, gun violence and the, uh, the infectious amount of money we have in politics, gun violence and gerrymandering. So there, it's not just one thing. And there are more and more of us willing to step up and say that, you know, we will be voting with this at the top of our list. And we are changing that narrative. In addition to that, the NRA is simply imploding, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Talk to me more about that, because it's been one of the big stories that I think has been somewhat underreported lately, where the NRA is suffering serious financial trouble. And a lot of it seems to come from what I think is a, a lie that's not being uncovered, where they always suggested that they were member funded. But we know that they get most of their money directly from gun manufacturers, not from not from gun owners. Um, and they're they're really in a lot of financial trouble right now. What's what's happened there and, and where's that going to go? Right. So they, they have found that um, their leadership has been misappropriating money and using it for personal things. So uh, Wayne LaPierre, who has been the, the long term face of the NRA, has been spending thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on personal trips with he and his family, buying designer suits uh, over in L.A. And it's interesting because you'll hear him give one of his uh, hate-filled, fear-mongering type of speeches, and he'll say, you know, he'll talk about these coastal elites, all the while he's shopping with them, right? Yeah. Um, so the NRA has never been... Uh, Corruption least, and hypocrisy among right? the, on the far right? Crazy. Who I know, would have right? expected? Who, who would have thunk it? But like uh, the... So since 1977, as, as the NRA has gone down this dark uh, and fear-based uh, rabbit hole, um, they have uh, really had this dominance um, in the in the political space, whether it's local elections, federal elections, and even judge-based uh, elections. But now people are seeing that not only are they not listening to their membership, because we know the majority of gun owners support uh, background checks on all gun sales, but the NRA does not. Um, their membership is seeing how the, the NRA, as, as its leadership is going, is becoming so dark uh, and off message. They're not talking about gun violence or the Second Amendment issue. They're talking about the the uh, the New York Times and, and really parroting the 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 words, the the hate filled words of, of Donald Trump. 
so they are saying that this organization does not represent them. And as you said, the overwhelming majority, if not nearly all of the funding comes from the, the, the gun manufacturers. The more guns that get sold, the more money that gun manufacturers make, the more money that the manufacturers will then give to the NRA. Um, but all of that is imploding now. You've had many of their top leadership and uh, board members have quit. They they parted with the NRA parted ways with their um, their uh, marketing agency that they have been with for 40 years. The, the NRA TV channel is now gone. Um, so I'm glad that they're imploding. That means that not only do they have less money to infect our body politic with, but they have less venue uh, to spew their hatred. I think that's right. So they have become a, a propaganda arm, effectively Absolutely. for for the, the the manufacturing industry and and in fact i mean from purely from the point of view of if you treat the nra which i think it is as more of a marketing arm of the gun industry they've yes. been tremendously effective in that haven't they in that we have so many guns in america um there are fewer gun owners fewer people who have guns now than there than there used to be but actually more guns in america than ever before and i think i read something like there's 122 firearms for every Americans, so there are more guns than people owned by a smaller and smaller number of Americans. That feels to me like a cultural change in what gun ownership means. It's no longer about kind of people using them as a tool around the farm and around the homestead, and it's more about people hoarding firearms. I mean, is that the marketing strategy they've basically uh, they've basically taken? Right. So essentially, their marketing strategy is just pure fear. They want, they want people to be so afraid that you have to buy a gun and then you need to buy more guns. Because again, you have to consider where the NRA's funding is coming from. It, it's not coming from the membership. People get an NRA membership because they want discounts at the gun range. They want discounts on, on wearables and magazines and things like that. They're not buying memberships by and large simply because they agree with the NRA's political uh, stance. So if the NRA can convince a small group of people to buy a whole mess of guns, then that only puts more money ultimately in their pocket at the end of the day. So they don't really care about people dying. That's not their issue. They just want more guns to be sold. So and it's I a think, scam. Right. Well, I mean, it, it's a scam, but it's also it shows you the power of marketing. Um, so, so much so that you have elected officials who are paid six figure salaries parroting their their uh their talking points i mean you have how many people talking about how um the only thing that stops a good guy with a gun is a bad guy with a gun which is simply untrue mm -hmm. uh, but they will parrot these things because the nra is unfortunately quite good at, at marketing and they are able to flood the zone with these these kind of uh these fear-based lies and make people believe that more guns makes them safer if that were the case we'd be the safest country on earth obviously you can see that we're not. Yeah, I mean, I have to tell you, Corey, I, I live, I'm a U.S. voter and uh, I work for, I am an executive committee member of Democrats Abroad, so I'm heavily involved in U.S. democratic mm -hmm. politics, but I live here in London and we don't have a gun problem. Right. We, we have a violence problem, but we do not have a gun problem. And it's amazing the difference that it makes in terms of how safe you feel walking around on the streets and how relatively free from fear in this country are in terms of that and I it just I mean I'm going to America pretty soon for a vacation mm -hmm. and a lot of people are saying to me is it safe there I mean do Americans yeah. back home realize that the rest of the world thinks we're completely insane uh well I mean I think they more and more people are recognizing that uh we can take responsible um and 
common sense type approaches to solving this issue, knowing that there are other countries that have done the same thing. So if you look at what happened in um, um, Israel uh, not too long ago, a number of years ago, they had a high gun suicide rate, knowing that a lot of their uh, their soldiers were taking their guns home. They yeah. changed the policy, thereby reducing uh, their, their, their gun death rate. And we can do the same thing here. There are a number of states that have taken action since Sandy Hook. Uh, there are about uh, seven to 10 states that have implemented one form of background checks on all gun sales and have reduced uh, their gun death rate. There are too many other states that have not done the same thing. And until we're willing to, to admit that we have a gun violence epidemic in this country, it's going to continue. I mean, the, the president, unfortunately, I put an asterisk by that, that yeah. time, got on TV today and said that, um, mental illness and hate pulled the trigger. No, it didn't. Mental illness had nothing to do with these shootings. So they want to deflect uh, everything they can and not talk about gun violence, but more and more people are demanding that we address it and 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 finally uh, address this issue so that we have fewer and fewer com uh, communities that are impacted by this, this deadly epidemic. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to talk about the president because I don't much like having his name across <laughs> my lips, but um, right. unfortunately, it's true that we have had a gun, a gun violence epidemic since long before his presidency, but it's sure. also true that it's been on the rise right. and that president's rhetoric and the president's life philosophy, his entire yeah. worldview seems to be um, inflammatory and violence inflected and seems to be very attractive, especially to the white nationalists, such as the people who committed, such as the individual who committed the El Paso shooting. Right. Um, is there anything that we can do as Democrats to dial down some of that rhetoric? Because what I worry is it just, it's just escalating. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It feels like a snowball. How do we take this down a notch? Right. So, I mean, to go back a second to the point you made about uh, how this gun violence is not new, right? No. Um, this has been going on through uh, nearly every presidential uh, administration. Uh, although uh, Obama said one of his greatest regrets during his two terms that he couldn't do more about gun violence pre uh, prevention, but at least he tried to take some executive yeah. actions to uh, to address it uh, in January of 2016. Uh, so he was trying to make an effort. He just didn't have a Congress that was willing to work with him and value uh, human lives over gun lobby money. But I, I think when you have uh, more people in the country who just simply aren't willing to accept uh, this this narrative of that uh, gun violence and gun death is the price of freedom, which which is nonsense. I mean, my mom is dead. She shot and killed herself. She's not free. She's been in a coffin underground for 40 years. And now today you have 22 people in El Paso, nine people in, in Dayton, and nearly 50 others who were shot and survived who were going to have their families impacted by this for the next forever. It's not freedom. Right. There's nothing free about this. And the fact that some people think they need a gun to go somewhere to feel safe also is a, is a uh, that's a condition by which you cannot be free. If you're always afraid of the other, how is that free? We need to get to a place where we're no longer afraid of someone who doesn't look like us, where we don't believe we need to be armed to the teeth in order to simply go to the mall. And the idea that we might have to go to a mall and, and think, am I going to go home today? You have, you have a generation of young people who are afraid of going to school because they, they're thinking they might be in the next mass shooting. They should be thinking about prom and dating and sports and math. Not are they going to get shot. 
You have, you have kids who have to go through uh, lockdown drills, shooter drills. Yeah. I mean, that, that what we are doing to ourselves is not only unnecessary, but it's preventable. And we're choosing to do the wrong thing. Yeah. So listen, I'm with you 100%. What could we do? Let's imagine we take back the Senate. Let's imagine we build on our gains in the House. Let's imagine we have the presidency come 2020. What would be the first and most effective action that we could take on this issue? So what we well what we can do even before the 2020 election is to have people call their uh, their U.S. senator um, and ask that person to force Mitch McConnell number one to bring the Senate back from recess and have a vote on HR8, which is a uh, bill that passed the House on a rather bipartisan basis that talks about uh, background checks for all gun sales. That's the first thing they can do. If we bring it to the floor, will it pass the Senate? Do you think? So, I mean, with with a small split in between the, the control that Republicans have versus being the minority for Democrats, I mean, traditionally it may not, but given the, the increase in awareness about gun violence, given the increase in death over the weekend, there, there is a chance you could get some reasonable uh, Republicans to, to value saving lives rather than parroting NRA talking points. Um, so that's what we can do now. But in the 2020 election, I, I hope people are willing to look at uh, gun violence prevention as something that is a major uh, issue that deserves your vote. Um, and that where we can push our elected officials to be more mindful and consider of this issue and that they are, you know, we demand that they take this kind of action. That's how we can sway this. So if we can take control of the Senate, continue to have control of the House, obviously win the presidency back, we can have the kind of policy, I believe, that are going to make our communities and families safer. Excellent. So, and I mean, in terms of the framework of that legislation, I mean, I'm not asking you to come up with it on the fly, but but for me, I mean, I take a very kind of, I'm not an expert, but my whole attitude on guns is guns are deadly. So are cars. We treat cars like a deadly like a deadly weapon. We 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 recognize that people need to be licensed if they want to drive one. We recognize that the car themselves have to be registered. Mm-hmm. I, I just kind of take a view of why can't we do that for guns? It's it's a similar situation. You know, we're not taking cars entirely off the road. They're still dangerous, but we understand that we have to regulate them. So that feels like the framework. I mean, do you have a framework in your mind of what an ideal kind of legislative regulatory agenda would be around guns? Sure. So um, one of the um, uh, one of the current presidential candidates, uh, Cory Booker, has got uh, the most um, um, far ranging plan for reducing all segments of gun violence. He also has a plan uh, to reduce gun suicides like my mom. So the most comprehensive way of reducing all segments of gun violence is through background checks for all gun sales. So in America, about 20 percent of all gun sales are completed without a background check. Uh, so that's something we we definitely and desperately need to address right away because again it impacts all segments of gun violence. Uh, we need to have extreme risk protection orders, which allows your family mem- family member to petition the sheriff or local court to have uh, someone's guns temporarily removed from a person's possession while they are in the throes of crisis. So again, you, you have these people talking about how after every one of these mass shootings that it's a mental health issue, but yet they underfund mental health care and they don't prevent those who might be at risk to themselves from having easy access to a gun. So yeah. in this case, you would assume that your immediate family member is going to know what your condition is so that uh, they can they can remove that, that lethal weapon from your uh, from your ability to access it 
so to give you time to get the help that you need. What about the cultural background? Because gun gun ownership is a tradition in American life, and I don't personally have any sympathy for it, but <laughs> but it is something that people feel very deeply about. Even even people who might want sensible gun control, they might also be very concerned about this. You're from Wisconsin, right. um, Western state. It's got you know a lot of rural parts of the country. How do you make this argument about the importance of gun reform? to a person who might themselves be concerned about wanting to keep their weapon when they know that they can do it safely. Sure. So um, Wisconsin's got a rich tradition with hunting. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people every year come to Wisconsin to go hunt in our amazing force. Um, and in many ways, it's a way to uh, help control the population of deer. Um, so it, it's a good thing. It's something that, you know, family uh, families have enjoyed from generation to generation. It's, it's, it's a good thing to do. But when you put it in context, though, it is harder to get a hunter license than it is for average everyday person, uh, an average everyday person to go buy a gun. You're not required to go through any kind of training in Wisconsin to just simply go buy a gun. So um, you can absolutely respect our rich hunting tradition. You can absolutely respect the fact that a person might want to have a gun uh, for, for protecting themselves and their family. All I ask is, is that you be safe. And responsible with that gun, keep it keep it safe and, and locked up so that your child doesn't get access to it. So that uh, someone who might be a danger to themselves might get access to it. Think about it this way: If a person that you know in your family is an alcoholic, would you leave open intoxicants around them? The answer clearly would be no. If you know that someone is a recovering opioid addict, would you just leave opioids in front of them? The answer clearly would be no. But when it comes to guns, it's like, well, let's throw our hands up. Yeah. I believe, by and large, gun owners are responsible, and they want other people to be responsible. And we 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 need to embrace that side of the equation rather than talking about how every time we talk about gun violence prevention, it, it somehow skews to we want to take all your guns away because that simply isn't the case. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think that's right. We need to have this conversation and we need to not be afraid of talking even to gun owners because we agree on this, actually. Most, as you say, most gun owners, because they themselves are responsible gun owners, understand that it's important that people be responsible gun owners. Um, we're in the middle of a Democratic primary. You mentioned mm -hmm. Cory Booker has a, a strong pan on, on gun control. I think you're a you're a big Cory fan anyway, just judging yep. by your Twitter beat. Um, <laughs> Which other candidates um, have put out policies on gun control, and how can we how can we talk about it in a way that makes clear we are unified on the need for this, even if we have some disagreements about how we get there? Sure, uh, I know that that Kamala uh, has put out a, a policy for us. So it's Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete is a uh, a veteran, uh, so his perspective on the issue I think is pretty good. I know that Bernie Sanders, uh, while has had a checkered pass on the issue, has uh, made some good statements and, and taken some good positions currently uh, on gun violence prevention. Um, I know that uh, Elizabeth Warren has spoken out quite a bit um, about uh, gun violence prevention, and, and I know that some of the others have as well. Um, but what I find uh, important is that they are all talking about it and they all yeah. appreciate the importance of gun violence prevention. Our party, the Democratic Party. Now, the, the very first thing I did when I got elected to the DNC was to change the, the front page of our website. At the very bottom, uh, it lists our, our primary issues that we fight about. Gun violence prevention wasn't one of them. It is now. 
Uh, it's got its own dedicated page once you click on the link. If you look at our um, our party platform, it is it is throughout the platform of uh, gun violence prevention is. Uh, so I'm glad that our party is, is the one that is really talking about the issue in a substantive way, in a common sense way, and realizing that it's going to be us that does yeah. this. We can't wait for somebody else to come along with a magic wand and say, I'm going to solve everything. And not every law is going to solve everything. You're not just because you have background checks doesn't mean the next day uh, gun death drops to zero. There are some other things, structural things like poverty, racism, how they're, uh, the interaction between the police and those communities. There are some other things we need to address, but we can at least resign ourselves to think we can make a difference in reducing gun violence in every segment. We, we owe it to these families to do that. Sure, 100%. I think you're right. It's, it's the kind of issue that we need to dig into on a long on a long term basis. It's not going to be solved by any piece of legislation. We have to confront it on a number of fronts. Mm -hmm. One of the things I always find frustrating is when people talk about mental health as if that's the alternative to gun control, you know, as if you can either fix mental health problems or you can talk about gun control, whereas actually restricting people who have, you know, serious violent mental health concerns from getting weapons would be one part of helping their health. But also we should on these things and there should be treatments and two-thirds of gun deaths i know you talked about your mom's situation um two-thirds of gun deaths are suicides and they are preventable and people tend not to um try again if there's if their first suicide attempt fails and and unfortunately guns make make everything more deadly um right. so yeah there's just a lot we need to dig into yeah so in the in the conversation about mental health care alone what you're seeing now is that you, you have more and more people talk about um, they, they're using mental health care as a scapegoat. Yes. To me, that is extremely dangerous because what that is doing, it will disincentivize someone who might be struggling with mental health care for asking for help or telling someone that they are struggling just based on the simple fear that they may be looked at as a potential uh, violent person. The majority, 95% of those with mental health care are the victims of crimes. There's only like four or five percent yeah. of those with mental illness that are the perpetrator of crimes. But yet it's an easy way to scapegoat uh, those with mental illness uh, with and conflate it with uh, all this mass gun violence simply because people can't comprehend what mass violence really means. Right. I mean, it's hard to conceptualize what might a person go through when they decide to go shoot up a nightclub or to go shoot up a Walmart or a sick temple. It, you, you can't fathom what that means. And I understand that, right? It, it's a hard thing to understand. But to make it easier for themselves, it's easier for them to allow their mind to wrap around the idea that, well, they must be mentally unwell to be able to go do something like that. But it, it's it's simply, that's dangerous. And it, it really does a disservice to those of us who do have an honest mental health, uh, mental health issue. I think that's right. And I think mass shootings in particular, I mean, we talk about a lot of different forms of violence and, and there are enormous, I mean, the accidental deaths, suicides, there are lots of other ways that guns cause unnecessary death. Sure. But mass shootings seem like a particularly American phenomenon and they specifically are on the increase, right. even while violence overall, violent crime is actually going, it has been going down across the country. This mm -hmm. specific thing is a problem. What's What's that about? What is happening? Where is this epidemic coming from? A lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, our uh, the media here in America has been spending far too much time talking about the, the shooter and in some ways mythologizing them, uh, talking about what the manifesto says and spending 
wall-to-wall coverage hour upon hour about, um, oh, he was a nice kid. We didn't think he would do something like this. He was an A student. If you look back in 2012, after the uh, the Aurora Theater Mass shooting, look at how much time they spent a, an entire weekend talking about that guy. So what, what happened was a family from um, uh, from that shooting, um, Karen Teeves, decided she was going to start this movement called uh, No Notoriety. Her son Alex was shot and killed in, in the theater. Uh, yeah. So they, they have been uh, helping the media to understand you cannot popularize or really talk about the shooter in the in the ways that you are. You can't offer them sympathy. Maybe you, you talk about the shooter in a very matter-of-fact way in the beginning, as a matter of here are what the facts are, but then you leave it there. We don't need to have think pieces about uh, how well this person did in school and all. We don't need that. We need to yeah. celebrate and highlight uh, the, the victims and survivors of, of these tragedies and lift those communities up rather than talking about those shooters. But that's really what has happened. You had too many copycat uh, killers. How many times have the, the shooters from Columbine been referenced or the yeah. shooter from Virginia Tech been referenced in a copycat style shooting? And we've made it not only easy to do that, but then we made it easier for people like that to get easy access to guns in a large arsenal and a huge amount of, of, of bullets to do it. And we simply can do better. So it's literally infectious, basically. One right. spreads to the next, to the next, yep. to the next. Right. I, I feel like the media has been learning slowly from this and, and, and maybe kind of against their own will. I, for me, it felt very different finally when shooting happened because the, for the first time I noticed that the victims and the survivors of that shooting, those kids who have just been absolutely amazing, um, they were dominating the media coverage because they insisted upon speaking out and being heard and, and they were very, very compelling. And I think since then, we've started to see a shift, which hopefully will carry on towards letting the voices of survivors and victims be the leading the leading story that goes on the news. So, um, and you know, I hate that there are survivors and victims, but if we're going to have a crime, let's let's talk to the survivors and victims, not to the perpetrators. Right. Yeah. right. And um, I think we need to do more of that because there there are so many of us that have our own story, and oftentimes we are not only ignored in the in the media sense, but we're ignored when it's time to make policy. Yeah. So we want to make sure that, again, you're not using uh, these tragedies as a way to advance an agenda that's not going to prevent actual tragedy from happening. We want to make sure that you are not uh, scapegoating those with mental illness. And we want to make sure that you actually want to fix the problem. Yeah, 100%. Listen, Cree, um, my viewers and my listeners are here for you. We want to solve this problem. We want to solve it together. For those who are listening to the sound of your voice and thinking, I just don't know where to start, what's the single most effective thing they can do today, tomorrow, and next week to end gun violence in America? So the first thing you can do today is, is call your legislator and demand that they take action on gun violence prevention, most notably have the Senate vote on H.R. 8. Uh, and then the, the next thing you can do is help other people get registered to vote, make sure they understand the importance of gun violence prevention and why it's something we can vote on. And then finally go vote uh, for people who are gun sense champions uh, in November of 2020. Vote for your lives. That's right. Absolutely. All right. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I hope we never have to have this specific conversation again, but you're welcome on to the podcast anytime again to talk about Cory Booker or whatever else is on your mind. <laughs> I sincerely appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks then. Okay, Bye-bye. And that's it. 
As you may have noticed, I have posted this episode uh, one day earlier than usual. I'm posting on Thursday, not Friday. Um, And the reason for that is that I will be on holiday for the next couple of weeks. Um, I will continue to be um, aiming to put out a podcast each week, but it might be slightly more um, unusually timed or coming out on a slightly different day, depending on when I'm able to tear myself away from all of my family uh, fun and friendliness. Um, So look out for that. I will try and keep you posted. Um, but um, it might just be a different, a bit different than you expect. Um, in the meantime, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Karen Jr. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. Um, or you can obviously drop me a voicemail using the Anchor app. There's a link in the podcast description. Um, or... I don't know, write me a telegram, (laughs) send a letter. Um, In the meantime, if you have not yet registered to vote or requested your absentee ballot, please do so. Um, If you're an American back home, the email address, the the website you need to go to is vote.org. If you're an American overseas, like myself, the website is votefromabroad.org. I'll speak to you next week. (music) 